Welcome to Global. I'm your host, Sinclair Stafford, and today we'll be talking about protests. So when we talk about protests, we often think about mass street demonstrations or marches where large groups of citizens express their dissatisfaction and demand action. So these images come to mind, but they, they don't occur in isolation. Movements build up over time. So what happens in the lead up to a mass protest and what effects do mass protests have in the long term? Recently, the world has been captivated by events in Venezuela, Algeria, and Sudan. Since we recently covered the political situation of Venezuela in February, I would encourage you to go check out that episode for a good overview of some of the factors driving mass protests there today. So before we get started, let's just give you some context on Algeria and Sudan. Let's go all the way back in our time machine to 2011, and we all know about the Arab Spring, or at least I hope you know about it. During the Arab Spring, the Middle East and North Africa, anything seemed possible. Tunisia's strongman fell because of mass protests, and then Egypt soon followed. Then protests erupted in Bahrain, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. But in the end, aside from Tunisia, we didn't see any really democratic change happen in those countries. But the world was captivated by these mass protests anyway because they challenged the status quo. And they brought the world's attention to how so many people in this region of the world were, were disenchanted. Now, we can fast forward now to 2019 today, Sudan and Algeria, where we've seen lots of demonstrations and protests that, again, have successfully removed longtime authoritarian leaders and created the opportunity for greater change to occur. Today, we're going to unpack some of what's taking place in those countries as a way to understand the effects of protests on a country's democratic journey. So Today, I'll be talking with Liz Lewis, the acting director of IRI's Africa Division. Since 2009, Liz has managed IRI programs in sub-Saharan Africa, so she's a real specialist. And our second guest is Chessie Gordonian. You know her, of course. Um, she's one of our global hosts, but she's also a program officer in IRI's Middle East and North Africa Division. She specifically covers our Algeria programming as part of her portfolio. Liz and Chessie, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thanks, you. Sinclair. So let's kick off this discussion by talking broadly about protests. Now, we know there's a whole host of reasons why people protest around the world. Cost of living or basic goods increasing, poor service delivery, demands for greater fundamental freedoms, um, and occupation, the list goes on. Not all of these have the same goals or the same impact. So in your opinion, how can we as external observers identify the protests that have the potential to actually make an impact? I think one key factor is the level of organization of the protests. Sure, a lot of them can start out as spontaneous instances of citizens going into the streets, but I think for the the more intermediate term or the longer term success of the protest movement, there needs to be someone or some group kind of in charge or being the leading force of that movement. Now, it's also important to note who those people or organizations are. So one thing to think about is how representative or broad-based their organization is or how well they speak to the collective and broad-based demands of the people in the streets. If it's a group speaking to a, to a niche interest or potentially a certain political view or something like that, then you might have less chance of citizens remaining coalesced around this movement into the long term to make it more successful. I don't know, Chessie, do you have something else to add? And no, I definitely think you brought up a good point, especially in terms of the organization level. And I would also say just 
the path forward, right? A clear idea of what the outcome should be and what people are rallying behind, not just some, you know, oh, we're upset today because the price of gas is high and then tomorrow we'll come back because, you know, bread is too expensive or whatnot. There needs to be some clear path forward or ask. There needs to be an ask, basically. And that's something that we can get a bit more into when we talk about, like, Algeria, for example. Yeah, you said that there needs to be a clear leader of the protests or some sort of organization behind them. That's something we actually haven't seen as much in Algeria and Sudan, right? It's pretty just kind of a leaderless movements. Um, I think to some extent. In Sudan, the Sudanese uh, Professionals Association has been kind of that organizing force, and that now has broadened into a bigger alliance of the forces for freedom and change. Um, so I think a key point is, so after the fall of Bashir, what was important was there was now a specific entity that was going to engage in negotiations on a way forward. Um, so yeah, while there were a lot of people on the street, they were broadly representative, it was a little more loosely organized perhaps at the beginning. The fact that there was an organization kind of leading the charge and that was listing coherently the demands of the protesters to the regime um, was critical in, in the success so far of that effort. So I would say that's one of the main differences with Algeria is while there were clear demands, I mean, they wanted Bouteflika to step down and they wanted a change, a holistic change to the, the regime, um, no real leader has emerged from this movement, which I would say has its benefits and negatives, um, which we can get into later. But um, in the case of Algeria, I think that almost defies what we were talking about earlier, the need to have a leader, because you see this happening in the streets of Algeria and throughout the country, but no one is really stepping up and declaring themselves the leader of this opposition movement. And that maybe links to the other point that you made about the need to have a clear vision, because I think we've seen a lot of these protests um, you could almost say the easy part, although it's not easy at all in many of these countries, is actually doing the protest and getting everybody to rally around the idea of, no, we don't want this. But then the, the harder part comes to when it's, what do, you, what do you want? And it's a fine line, too, right? I mean, we've seen instances where people have been seen as the leader and then they've been accused of co-opting a movement or they don't their interests aren't in line with the ordinary person on the street. And so it is a fine line. Sometimes that can hinder the movement as well. Well, moving on to the next question here. Um, history has shown us that there are mixed results when it comes to protests. So what needs to happen for protests to pave the way to success, successfully establish democracy? I would say echoing what Liz said earlier, just a clear roadmap, a clear list of demands of what is next. Okay, again, you want the fall of the regime. The regime is down, right? You cut the head off. Now what? What do you want next? Do you want transitional justice? Do you want uh, free and fair elections? Do you want, like, what is the path forward? I would say that's extremely yeah. important. Yeah, and I mean, I think we learned from the Arab Spring, for example, that you know, the transition from a protest to a democracy is a long process that is brought <laughs> at many different points. So just because the protest might have been successful in achieving its immediate aims, which is maybe the fall of the regime or some kind of transitional period, that doesn't mean that you'll end up there mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Transitioning to a democracy is a fraught process that requires, like, careful tending for years following a fall of a regime. You need to build institutions. You need people to feel like their voices are heard and they have freedom. And, and you know, 
people coming out of a dictatorial regime or process, I mean, there's a lot of um, psychological and kind of other issues that make the transition to democracy something that people may not have full trust in, or it takes a while to change the mindset and the norms to democracy. And so um, we need to be careful in assuming that just because a protest was successful in maybe having the regime fall, that doesn't mean that the transition to democracy will be easy. I actually, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it almost opens Pandora's box in terms of what comes next. And that's something that comes up a lot when you are dealing with authoritarian regimes and whatnot. It's, you know, people are afraid if you remove the strongman, then what? There's going to be vacuum, Chaos. et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I really think that when you're working on this transition, inclusion of all threads of society is key to the success. Otherwise, you're just perpetuating marginalization that in most cases is oftentimes the reason behind the initial uprising. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and patience, which is something that's funny because in the implementing community, it's always like, well, why, has, why haven't things changed yet? But it takes a long time. I mean, the U.S. didn't become a democracy overnight, right? It took 200 plus years. So it's, I would say, just to boil it down a little bit, it's a clear path forward, um, inclusion of all threads of society. And yeah. Okay, so now let's get into the nitty gritty more with Algeria and Sudan. Protests don't come out of nowhere, but at the same time, things have been kind of the same in Algeria and Sudan for a long time. Economically difficult, stagnant in terms of rights reforms, anything like that. So can you just tell us quickly how the protests began, Chessie, in Algeria and what they've achieved so far? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you're right. A lot of people do think that these protests, you know, why are they happening now? Um, Algeria has been like this for years. Nothing new. Um, I would argue that it was precipitated by the economic crash that happened um, in 2014 when the oil prices dropped significantly and the government was no longer able to do what I call the cash for peace deal, where it would provide very significant subsidies and handouts and whatnot to citizens in order to almost calm them down or keep them at bay. Um, and then at the same time, you have this authoritarian leader who's in his 80s, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who's been around for almost 20 years, who has been removed from the public eye due to health issues. He had a, a stroke back in 2013 and has been largely incapacitated. And since then, Algerian citizens have not seen that strong, powerful figure that they need for a very long time. And then in February, you have the party, the main leading party, the FLN, who's basically unable to agree on a replacement candidate. So they just say, okay, it's fine. He'll run again for not the second, but his fifth mandate. So when he announced that he would run, that's what basically prompted the Algerians to just say, okay, we're like, halas, we're done. Um, and I do want to make a point. Protests are not new to Algeria. There are about 9,000 micro-protests that have been going on in Algeria every year for very different reasons across the country. So this isn't a new phenomenon. What's been different about this protest or this movement, shall I say, is the level of organization, how frequent they've been. I mean, we're going into our 12th week of protest. And halfway through that, or Eight weeks into that, the president stepped down, right? So so that's how they began. But what have they achieved besides the, the removal of the president? So they, remo they removed the president. 
elections have been called by the interim president, Bensella, but that's pretty much it. There's been a really interesting, shall I say, campaign against corruption that's been executed by the Army General Gaisela, who I mentioned earlier, and he's been arresting very high-profiled, high-leveled politicians. You know, the brother of the president was arrested last week. Some say that's an achievement, but... It's it's also a show, right? I mean, I think I know what you're saying is like you're taking the head off, but the body is still there. Of the, the body regime. is still intact, and ultimately, not much has changed. Yeah, right? not yet. Not Inshallah. yet. How about you, Liz? So in Sudan, we don't need to get into all of the terrible things that Bashir has done, um, but what has ultimately led to his downfall. Um, was similarly these economic conditions in the country. Um, so late last year. Um, in the midst of an ongoing currency crisis, economic decline, um, the government removed subsidies on wheat and fuel, um, which, among other things, drastically raised the price of bread. So that really hit the ordinary Sudanese person where it really hurts, where they, when they can't eat or they can't afford food. And so um, in, in April, the Sudanese Professionals Association called for a mass sit-in at the military headquarters in Khartoum. And it's when tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Sudanese amassed in the capital that the military really saw that something needed to change because people were serious this time about um, the fall of Bashir. And so I think it was five days later in April of this year that Bashir was removed from power by the military um, who have taken over um, in a transitional military council since. You both touched on the element of the military role, both before the presidents were removed and after. So in your opinion, what has been a key factor in turning the military into an ally or an enemy to the protesters? I guess I should say, which, which, which is the military right now? Is it an ally or an enemy in both of your countries? I mean, in Sudan, it's a bit of a mixed bag, right? So prior to the fall of Bashir, we started to see in Khartoum during that mass sit-in that low-level military and army members were starting to protect the protesters from um, attacks by the security sector aimed at dispersing the protesters or at least just making them so scared that they went home. I think that's an important bellwether when you're looking at protest movements because in these regimes, sure, there's the figurehead man in charge, but the military is what allows that to continue to happen. Maintaining control of the security sector is how they repress people, how they scare people, how they maintain um, control of the country. Um, and so when you start to see defections, that's important. Now, why would low-level military defect? Oftentimes, it's when they start to see that they also have nothing to lose. When the soldiers aren't getting paid or when they're not seeing that their um, protection of the regime is getting anything for their family, then they start to question, just like everyone else in the country, what do I have to lose? So why not join these people to demand our freedom? Because oftentimes the low-level ranks are in just as much distress as the ordinary person. So yeah, the military has always played a significant role in Algeria, especially in its politics. Initially, before these protest movements began, the military was part of Bouteflika's clan, keeping the status quo. And then you have these protests. I think the military realized that this was an opportunity for them to, I don't want to say take power because I don't think that it, I don't, it's not a military coup and I don't think that the military is going to sweep the elections or whatnot if they do end up happening. But they basically 
became almost the buffer siding with the people and saying, no, we need to call. Like, But now that position is shifting, right? Now citizens are almost upset with the military because they see them as pushing for these elections that have no business happening anytime soon. Um, so there's this weird dichotomy, I would say, in terms of perceptions of the military. So um, turning aside from the military and going towards um, the regime now, um, when you're looking at the dynamics of a mass protest, um, the protesters aren't the only ones who determine whether their movement is a success or not. Uh, authoritarian regimes typically make mistakes, and you could even say they have to make a mistake for um, protesters to succeed. So what do authoritarian regimes, um, in this case Algerian Sudan, typically do when they're challenged by protesters? So I think um, one of the big mistakes they make is to employ violence or to repress more. Um, and sometimes that tactic works. I mean, protests are, are, um, are shut down all the time in Africa and around the world. But when you have kind of a mass movement in the street that's gaining traction, um, a surefire way to get the international community to pay attention is to start shooting at the protesters. Um, and so employing violence is something that needs is a very calculated risk on the part of the regimes. I would also say um, in, in, in increasing the levels of repression, when people have um, kind of come to their wits end and are willing to go to the streets in regimes like that of Sudan, um, when you start arresting people, when you start torturing people, it only serves to remind them that they're not free and that why you know, they can't stand for this to continue. And so while sometimes it has the desired effect of getting people to be more afraid and to go home and just shut themselves in and say, we'll just wait this out, um, it can also have the effect of reminding people while they're in the streets in the first place and kind of reinforcing their motivations to, to fight the regime. Okay. Uh, now, thinking about the regional impact a little bit, um, authoritarian regimes, they often take note of what's going on in neighboring countries or around the world uh, to learn what not to do um, and to continue to maintain control over their countries. And protesters in their turn also learn how they might exploit circumstances in their own countries. They learn from the Arab Spring, those lessons. Um, so what kind of impact do you think these movements in Algeria and Sudan will have on their neighbors? Uh, successful protests in one place can serve as inspiration to citizens in another repressive environment that, hey, things can change. I think that that is an important signal to send, that these people can fall, that my life can get better, that we don't have to live like this. But every single situation is different, and the citizens of, their own, of an individual country have to go through their own struggle to change their situation. And just because Bashir fell in Sudan doesn't mean that Museveni will fall in Uganda, for example. The people of Uganda have to sort that out for themselves. Um, similarly, um, in Ethiopia, um, we've seen over the last year or so kind of a phenomenal kind of transition from within the ruling party toward democracy in response to mass protests nationwide. Um, and I think that that has manifest in a very different way than we see in Sudan. And so while these changes can be inspirational, I don't know that they necessarily mean that something will or won't work in, in a different context. And I think we actually also learned that from the Arab Spring. Sure, all That's, these things yes, happened exactly. at the same time, but they turned out very differently. One thing I'm curious to see is 
how other authoritarian regimes respond. I was going to ask about within that. Within their own country. Like, so, for example, in Algeria, okay, paying subsidy or, you know, putting in place subsidies and paying people off, et cetera, is not sufficient to buy people off. And so I'm curious to see how the regimes in other countries, I can't think of any right now off the top of my head, but how they will respond and adapt or not their strategy. I think that's going to be something uh, very interesting to keep an eye out on. Listen, Jesse, thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. This I could say this conversations like this is part of the reason why I like working at IRI. So <laughs> I'm glad that we were able to have it. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. And thank you to the listeners for sticking with us. We also want to know what you think of the show. So please make sure to go wherever you download your podcast and give us a review. This will help more people hear about our show. Until next time, I'm Sinclair, and thanks for listening to Global. Global.